Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 215. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I'm happy to be joined by someone who's staying up late with me here to make this call, Mr. Jorgen Matsi. Jorgen, how are you doing? I'm good, Steve. How are you yourself? (laughs) I am also doing good, man. I've been looking forward to having this chat with you. And I think you know why, but why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself and tell everyone why you're here. Well, I think mostly it's because, first of all, I'm a BGJ black belt, um, but those are most of the guests you have on, not all, but most, but mainly because I have a background in psychology and, and I've been dabbling in sports psychology quite a lot. Like technically I do have the license to practice as a sports psychologist, but I don't do that much these days. But besides doing BGJ and doing psychology, I've, I've always liked to say that Coaching BJJ is is my hobby even more so than than actually doing BJJ because due to how things with BJJ have been developing in my country, which is the country of Estonia, which probably most of your listeners know as the country of Preet, Preet Mikkelsen. <laughs> but he's not the the whole of Estonian BJJ. So there's there's other people and and we kind of grew up together with Preet in in the local BJJ scene. But what's common is that basically we started teaching and learning at the same time. So so basically we we all were white belts back then learning from videotapes and and from each other and iterating and at the same time as we were kind of trying to dabble in that and trying to figure this thing out without any kind of major external sources or or no like no no Brazilian black belt who who brought down the holy art in the, into the land of Estonia we were figuring out it it all by ourselves so and and trying to pass it on at the same time so so it was literally i started basically like more frequently learning in in 2003 and so it's been almost 20 years and and basically also also trying to teach from the very very first weeks and and months while i was at the same time learning it as well so i've been coaching as long as i've been learning it myself so kind of the psychology side and, and figuring out how to coach people better and what makes people kind of tick in the context of BJJ. Like this is this is where it all connects for me. Amazing. Yeah. And that's something that, as you know, we've been exploring a lot on the podcast recently, just these ideas of how we can integrate science-backed coaching practices into jujitsu and maybe modernize and optimize the way that most classes teach. I mean, as you know, most classes kind of follow this traditional structure, but we believe there's a better way. So happy to have you here today to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. This has been really, really awesome to hear about the ecological approach and, and the motivational theories and all that. Because what I've always been saying to, to other coaches as well is kind of that if you want to figure out what's the best way to learn and teach combat sports or, or BGJ being one of them, it's rather unique combat sport in, in my opinion. 
but the best way, like we should, we shouldn't look into how classical martial arts are taught, like Aikido or, or traditional karate or something like that, because this is an outdated learning method, which, which, which is, it might be even like pseudo historical because we know how much influence like the early 20th century had on that. And also we shouldn't look into, let's say, combat sports such as wrestling because, because it's a, a relatively poor sport, but we should look into kind of sport games where there is more money because money drives the research and best practices. So one should look into, into tennis, for example, or, or soccer and, and into these types of sports and kind of take the coaching advice from there. Right, right. Well, here's a question for you. You talked about the kind of classical traditional martial arts approach and why we think there's a better way. And you talked about where we're seeing developments and what kind of sports we're seeing more cutting edge coaching practices. And you mentioned the ecological approach as being part of that. Now we've talked about that recently on the podcast, uh, probably a good episode for anyone to listen to if they haven't heard it already is episode 206 with Dr. Rob Gray on the topic. But beyond that, why didn't you expand upon that a little bit and tell me you know, what's wrong with the traditional way of doing things and how do these new methods that we're pulling in from other sports make things better? So kind of help me unpack this, this concept of the ecological approach and why you think it's so good for jujitsu. Yeah, I, I think I won't even like people can go and, and listen to that episode if they want to really delve into that. But I think we in Estonia were lucky in that sense that we both, me and Preet and, and the others, like some of the listeners might might know Martin Aedma, who is kind of the other more famous Estonian BJJ coach, and, and he has some good materials and good stuff in, in YouTube. So so we were lucky in the sense that we relatively early, we discovered SPG. I have to give credit where credit is due. And, and SPG already in early 2000s, they were talking about the concept of aliveness and talking about that, how, how BJJ should be learned and taught as a as a game and sport mostly and SPG obviously had a huge influence from from Chris Howater so because he has his and I really like uh, Howater's kind of mindset or or the statement that he makes that that BGJ has this this is the triangle of that there's the think street train sport and practice art which which Chris explains as okay like you you kind of have to think that this is a true like martial art and true combat sport so whatever you do in jiu-jitsu should work in the context of where strikes are involved or it should kind of transcend the the modality so to say that's the thing street part and train sport is that if you want to train a skill like essentially it's like a physical skill right then you should look into how sports are actually trained and there the concept of aliveness comes from is that you you in actual sports or or sports practice you don't see dead patterns as you see in traditional martial arts where you basically like the only only sports where actual dead patterns and practicing kind of dead patterns and by dead patterns i mean that you kind of take a let's say you you try to copy a movement pattern as idealistically as possible you basically see it only where it's graded like gymnastics for example like some some forms of gymnastics or dance there might be the thing that there is some kind of ideal form that is then graded right but if we look at the actual sports where performance kind of objective performance as as where where something needs to be done more or in games where there is a rule set and you need to win then you you see the practice let's take tennis for example you you see that the practice 
really early is quite chaotic in the sense that okay, you 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 learn the position how you should hold your hand and and how you grip the grip the racket, right? But then quite quickly it happens so that ball is thrown at you from different angles and you try to hit it back into maybe different spots and you move around the court already maybe in the very first tennis lesson, right? But if you go into let's say very traditional I don't know, karate or, or even judo or, or I don't know, God forbid, like ninjutsu practice or whatever, <laughs> then basically in the first lesson, you, you just learn very like specific movement patterns and you copy those movement patterns idealistically. And you, you might do them with a partner, but it's a cooperative partner who also offers you like a single pattern of resistance. And, and you can't learn a sport that way. So actually, like you, you learn the sports and this was what we kind of how we discovered SPG and the concept of aliveness and, and Matt Thornton was, was big on, on that time with that concept. And I think SPG and, and Chris Howater with his gym, they were like very, very like early with that stuff. Like they were talking about it in, in early 2000s. So, so for us, so it's been funny to, to listen to some episodes where you talk about learning on BJJ mental models, where you kind of talk about like, oh, like this ecological model and kind of practicing BJJ as an actual sport, like this is relatively new. Whereas for us, it's been around for 20 years because this was what drew us to BJJ and MMA because we, we saw that learning traditional martial arts from which we all came, like Preet Mikkelsen used to do Wing Chun, I used to do Aikido. Like we, we kind of saw that watching early UFCs and kind of trying to spar between us, like we saw that it doesn't work. Like it's it's like we, we thought that we were full on ninjas, but then we put on helmets and gloves and realized that everything looked so ugly still. And none of the forms we had practiced or the kata, like none of that stuff actually worked. And we were thinking like, hmm, maybe there's a better way. And then we discovered the SPG concept of aliveness and, and Chris Howater stuff and who were talking about that. Okay, like this this should be practiced as a sport that you want to make it safe. And then you can add like varying degrees of resistance. And it was actually back, um, were you in the UG forums the way back when, where, where Stephen Kesting was active and <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Yes, I do. I wasn't following them very closely, but I do remember being a young white belt and discovering these places online where people were talking about jujitsu nonstop. So yes, I didn't really contribute there, but I was following. Yeah, so, so actually kind of around that time, me and the co-founder of my gym, which I do have to say is the oldest BJJ and MMA gym in Estonia. So, so this is the one thing I, I have over pre. He started the, his journey a couple of years earlier than I did, but we in my town, which is, which is Tartu, which is the second biggest city in Estonia, we made things official a year before he did. So he was still kind of doing Wing Chun on the side a little bit due to his historical tie-ups and, and personal relations. But, but we were the first ones to say kind of to, like, let's throw that traditional crap away and, and let's start our own own gym on our own. So we have had kind of the sport-minded training methods from that on. And why I mentioned UG is that actually we, we spent hours on message boards there kind of talking about teaching methodology and, and some of the people who are also around in BJJ mental model space, such as Asopian, like Asopian still has up, I think, one of our instructionals. We we shot our first instructional, I think it was 2004 or something, like I was still a white belt. My my co-founder was a blue belt and, and we shot the instructional half guard, which is called functional half guard. Like it was, it's really 
crappy quality. It was originally on Google videos and now it's on, on YouTube. And But people say they still like it because kind of already there we describe that, okay, you learn this move, like you, you learn how to keep the position, like you hold the inside bicep stein half guard and you want to have the underhook. And, and then we describe kind of how you should positionally kind of drill that. And what I always, when I say drill in my book, it means drilling means doing stuff with resistance. It's, it's reps. You can get in without resistance. But when I say drilling, then I always mean that there is a degree of resistance added. And, and that's the way that we've been practicing kind of from the very early on. And then obviously I was studying psychology parallel to being a hobbyist in BGJ and a hobbyist coach at the same time. And then when I got also into sports psychology, I, I kind of saw that, oh, wow, I'm, I'm on the right track and kind of how you learn and how you develop actual skills. And there where the ecological approach comes in, which is all related to that you, you want to give some Basically, you want to give some constraints for the situation. So your job as a coach, the most important thing is that you you kind of design the environment where the right skills can emerge. And this is the most important part, as opposed to kind of saying that, okay, here's an arm bar, you put your left leg there, you put your right hand here, and this is how you do it. And now you repeat it like, whatever, 100 times, like this is not the best way to, to do it. So I saw that this all clicked as well. And I will actually give a book recommendation, which also like rocked my world. It's now a 10-year-old book. And I still think that this is something that all aspiring coaches who are kind of into reading science textbooks, they should read. It's an excellent book. It's called Applying Educational Psychology in Coaching Athletes. The author is Jeffrey J. Huber. And it's from 2012. And I got my hands on that quite early, I think maybe like 2014 or something. And they're then kind of, well, you can say it in two ways, either my head exploded again, which it does often in teaching and, and learning BGJ. And at the same time, a lot of things clicked into place into, in regards to what I had learned from other sports psychology sources and, and my psychology education. And I was like, wow, things are put like so elegantly there. So you can directly apply it to, to BGJ as well. Awesome. I'll have to take a look into that book. Yeah, your combination background here as both a jiu-jitsu black belt and a sports psychologist is interesting to me here. And I'd want to specifically dig into something that I know you've been talking about a bit in our Discord, and that's this idea of incentive systems mm -hmm. and how you can incentivize people to kind of create the habits that you want them to see, help them achieve the performance goals that they want to achieve, that kind of thing. So, you know, I'll give you the floor here and I would definitely mm -hmm. want to get mm -hmm. your opinion about mm -hmm. what these are, why they're important and how do you put them in place for your athletes? Yeah, yeah. And this, this was one topic that we brought up and the other was pulling the trigger, right? Which seemed to interest people. And, and I think this two tie really nicely together because like whatever we do, it's all about like emotions and motivation, right? It's, it's kind of the, we can like on the very broad scale, we can say that everything we do is driven by and driven. That means motivation, literally like motivation means kind of heading into some direction, right? And motivation is always driven by emotions. You cannot separate the two if you look into kind of the definitive literature, right? And in regards like learning and building the incentive structure, first of all, I always want to say that unless we're talking about teaching kids. Like we as teachers are really, really fortunate. We, we don't realize how like super lucky and privileged we are in the sense that we do teach relatively intelligent, relatively well off because they can pay the fee adults 
who come in with a desire to learn. And, and this is, this is a very strong privilege that, that most teachers in the world don't have, like be it in other sports or educational field or so forth and so on, right? So it's a very, very kind of nice contingent we, we get to, get to teach. And in regards incentives now, what comes from the, the fact that we are so privileged is also that we can really define what do our students see as good. Like it, they come into the class with certain headset, right? They, they want to learn something. They have like an idea. Maybe they want to get in shape. Maybe, maybe they want to kind of learn how to maim people, whatever. Like they, they want to do something, but they are receptive in general to kind of being taught what is actually valuable in the class. And this is now really important. This is now really important. If, if one is thinking about, let's say, building a class, then you can, from day one, you as a coach can start to, or one should start to also teach what is good in the context of, of that training group, right? I'll give you a practical example. Like people come into jujitsu class with all kinds of, kind of, they have some kind of motivation, right? Otherwise they, they wouldn't come. They, they want something out of the class. A lot of people still kind of think of it as, as either a combat sport or a martial art, right? So basically we start, very first thing we teach them is the rear naked choke or rear naked strangle. Basically we're, we're saying that, okay, you, you highly likely, at least some of you came here to learn simulated murder. So here's simulated murder. We get everybody laughing and also it's kind of exciting, right? But at the same time, together with that, we teach them how to tap. And we say that tap is really important. Like this is maybe 15 minutes into the first class, right? After your really basic, really small warm up, And we say that, yeah, this is, this is how you tap. You, you don't want to get like strangled unconscious. You, you don't want to strangle your partners unconscious. So this is the coach talking and framing kind of, this is essentially the culture of the, of the program, right? Or the, the art. We're teaching kind of exciting and, and kind of little bit dangerous things. And these are good. Okay. Like this is a goal you, you strive towards. But at the same time, we emphasize that this is learning you, you learn how to tap. We say that we even might say that, okay, something like, okay, here's you rear naked strangle, super important technique in BGJ. Here's the most important technique. And we teach them tapping essentially, like you, you tap with your hand and you tap on your partner. So we normalize that from day one, that, that we kind of from, from their 15 minutes in, and we start to talk about like how important it is actually to tap, how common that is, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying to nudge them towards normalizing that and not taking tapping as a loss, even when they still like, they, they don't know what sparring is. They haven't done any positional changes, so forth and so on, right? So the coach is building the environment. What is something to strive towards, right? And then to kind of, let's jump like one month forward from that point, then after the rear naked strangle, all our kind of basics and foundations that we build the program on. And this is one group that starts together. We have like a set beginning, set end beginners course. So, so this kind of enables that system. So you have all kinds of positional changes. Like you have some sweeps passing. We actually continue with back escapes and controlling the back. And what you can do there is that because the only thing, only submission they know for the first month is the RNC, then this is kind of the ultimate goal for them. And we can actually let them like pseudo spar already in like the first, I think it's the third week they're starting to do that. And they have only learned some positional changes, but since they only know how to finish the match or the sparring round via RNC, 
they are internally motivated to move towards the back and to get the strangle. And this actually forces them through the uh, hierarchy. As opposed to, let's say, when we started back in the early 2000s, we went like, okay, let's teach mount escapes and mount top and side mount escapes and side mount top because, I mean, guard is so hard, like, let's not start from that. And what happened then, essentially, is that you at least saw some big guys, like white belt big guys, who were able to tap their peers with key locks from side mount, right? And then you see that those big guys who were able to tap others with key locks from side mount, they never learned how to take the back. And they never kind of actually learned how to mount and control people from mount because they didn't need to. They got the tap with what they had. And, and this was because that's where the incentive was. And this was like easy to them. And if this was easy, why should they kind of risk losing positions and moving to, especially for big guys, into kind of like more dexterous and, and more risky positions because in transition you can you can let the person escape while you can just smash somebody in, in side mount and then do the key lock. The obvious problem there being is that when they kind of have practiced that skill for a year or two, kind of blue belt and, and maybe reaching purple, then you suddenly realize that, oh crap, this doesn't work and now I don't have the back taking skills as well. Yeah, yeah, got it. You know, it's funny you bring that up because this kind of reframes a lot of the way that gyms traditionally market jujitsu in a very different light. I think you bring up a very important point, which is that when we bring new grapplers on and we want to get them started in jujitsu, often the way that we do it is kind of geared around marketing, right? The idea is you take a person and you get them into a sparring environment in, on their first day. Usually they take a, a day one white belt, pair them up with like a blue or a purple belt and just let that person get completely tuned, right? Because the idea is it's marketing. You're trying to demonstrate to the person, to this person who's never grappled before, that jujitsu is effective and it works. And the idea is they will then be motivated to sign up and train. And all, all yes. of that, I guess it, it kind of intuitively makes sense. But the problem is, like you said, if you don't give people guidelines, and you basically just say, go in there and fight, <laughs> right? There's a, yeah, yeah. if you do that, there's no constraints that are being put around the training and these grapplers are going to self-organize into a solution that may or may not make the most sense. So your goal as a coach is to put on some constraints that will encourage the right behavior. And I like that idea of you give them one finish, right? You give them like the rear naked choke is as good as any. And you say, start from here. Your goal is to get here because at least then people are trying to guide their behavior into a positive and appropriate direction. Whereas, like you said, if you take two people and you, you put them in there and just say, go nuts, right? Win by any means necessary. You're going to see big guys just try to, you know, do the big squish, sit on someone and try to key lock <laughs> them. You're going to see little guys try to do backflips to get out of submissions, right? You're going to kind of encourage the, in a lot of ways, the, the least desirable actions out of your partners. So it comes down to how have you incentivized these people? And if you incentivize them that, hey, the goal is to win, then they're going to do whatever their body lets them do to try to win. But if you tell them your goal is to get to this predefined outcome, the rear naked choke from the back, they're more likely to build the habits that are going to get them where you want them to go, aren't they? Exactly, exactly. And, and this is also why, why the RNC, I mean, it's not as good as any. It's the best, in my opinion, because first of all, it's relatively safe. I mean, if you take like day one, day two people, you can basically tell them like, okay, if you really want to, you can go kind of all out from the back position, like trying to submit each other. 
like obviously you're going to tell them that don't stick the fingers into the eyes and and so forth and so on you kind of give them the i mean these are also constraints right so so you give them kind of the basic human constraints but but they're really kind of way less likely to injure each other doing that as opposed to when you would give them a kimura for example right or for heaven's sake a heel hook right but with rnc you can be like relatively safe and and at the same time you also encourage tapping right and the other thing is that and this is an interesting i will i will take a short side tour here is that it's kind of uh, submission statistics right from the competitions you usually have that the rnc or or in gi it's going to be the bow and arrow is like the one of the most prevalent subs right and therefore it's kind of sometimes the coaches take like oh like finishing the rnc and and finishing from the back like that's a such an important skill and such an important sub so everybody should really learn that and to a degree this is true because like in sport taking the back is really important but at the same time i think it's kind of a false conclusion because i would assume that if you can submit somebody from the back like you can control somebody you can you can take their back you can control them from the back and submit them from the back you were kind of better than them anyway so actually like you don't need to have like a perfect rnc because because if you're getting their back and being able to control them, you're more likely to finish them anyway, right? As opposed to actually when you're looking into what would be the most technically important subs to learn or really dedicate your time into when you're like an experienced grappler already, I'm not talking about total beginners, it would be actually the subs that you can hit from the positions that are kind of let's say from guard positions or or when you're behind on points like you're dominating and then hitting a sub but but you're kind of hitting them in transition and so because they need more technical finesse and timing as opposed to getting it from the back so again like it's it's kind of a thing that what leads into what in bjj but this is a small detour i just uh, this is something that is kind of rubbing me the wrong way when when subs are talked about you know this is fascinating because a common conception that a lot of coaches have is they will say things like well we don't like to teach subs to beginners because you know they might get injured but what you've said and i've heard some other coaches say this as well is actually they often will lead with subs or certain subs and they'll work backwards from there it's funny because i just finished uh, rob gray's book how we learn to move and he talks about something he calls ironic errors which is basically where your intuition tells you that something might be the right way to do things but it turns out that in reality that's not actually the case we talked about the traditional class structure of jujitsu where it's kind of this three-part thing and basically the the idea is the coach tells the the student what to do and expects them to duplicate it and that's an example of one of these ironic errors where it seems like that might be the best way to teach intuitively but it actually turns out that it's not the best way to teach and i find this an interesting example of that too where you lead with a submission and i'd be curious to get your perspective on this because there are many coaches who say things like you know we won't let you do submissions until you're you've got a stripe or two on your white belt and it sounds like you've kind of got a very different approach and i'd love to get your opinion on how these contrast so yeah, like ideally the training environment should be built in a way. And I think there's multiple ways to do that. I, I don't think even like beginning from subs or beginning from positions, like I think both ways can work, but one should also think about not only what is the optimal way to develop skills, especially in the context of, let's say, first 
one or two months, but one should also think like what is motivating to people, what makes them excited, right? And for example, not learning SOPs at all might be kind of boring in the beginning, especially because nowadays, like earlier, you said that, oh, like it's it's like the traditional ways to get a person in, have a blue belt or purple belt, beat them up and kind of that convinced them that BJJ is the greatest thing ever, right? This might have been a good way in like 90s where you had to convince all the ninjas, right? And and, and early <laughs> UFCs were still the thing and, and you had somebody come through your door and I'm like a karate black belt. And, and But nowadays things are different. Nowadays, people who come into jiu-jitsu class, they at least have a vague idea what jiu-jitsu is. Or if they don't have a vague idea what jiu-jitsu is, then they mostly don't need to be beat up, like, because you don't want to give the impression that jiu-jitsu is that. They they kind of might be oblivious in the sense that, oh, like, I, I wanted to try something different and, and maybe this is a good sport to try. Like, you don't want to beat those people up. You don't want to, you want people to enjoy the class. And, and this is actually something that I wanted to reach and in regards also what I got from the Applying Educational Psychology book that as coaches and also as practitioners, like it's like you, if you're a white belt listening to this podcast, I don't want to get like too coach centric here. If you want to optimize your BJJ, you can think of your journey in a way that, okay, learning is happening at every moment of your life. Like in most generally, we are all learning all the time. For example, right now I'm sitting on a chair. So to a degree, I'm unconsciously learning that late at night, sitting on a chair feels relatively comfortable. So actually I'm a tiny bit more likely to also sit on a chair tomorrow, right? So also in jujitsu class, when you are in jujitsu class, you can always do this like record scratch, freeze frame and ask yourself, okay, what is being learned at this moment? Like is actually jujitsu being learned? Is it being learned that jujitsu is hard, easy, exciting? boring, all those factors into play, like what is being learned in this this very moment? Is it being learned that most of jiu-jitsu is me looking at the instructor giving a speech? So so that's probably not the desired outcome because we, we want to optimize learning in the sense that most of the time in class, you want to learn that or teach depending on which end you are. But also if you're learning jiu-jitsu, you're also teaching yourself. You want to design the environment in a way that it makes you satisfied, excited. You you feel that it gives you some kind of a skill. These are also important factors, kind of only partly connected to the fact that, okay, how fast are we building an athlete? Okay. But even when we are talking about building athletes, we talked about earlier that, okay, you can imagine this like chaotic scenario that just have everybody fight, right? And I think this is the environments from where like early excellent BGJ athletes came from in, in Brazil. Like, let's say, I don't know, Terere or, or Marcelo Garcia. Like, like Marcelo is actually a good example because as far as I heard, like the gym that Marcelo came from, like it was pretty much kind of the very hardcore, like let's let's train hard, let's spar all the time. But then when he moved to New York and opened up his own academy and kind of doing his own instructionals, it showed that he already thought a lot about what is the actual best way to teach and learn. So so in regards to teaching athletes, also you can ask like, okay, what is being learned at this moment? Let me give you a more practical example. I see a lot of kind of gyms still doing those warm-up drills, for example, doing, let's say, Toreando passes for speed. Like the coach can say like, okay, like one minute you hit the Toreandos and the more Toreandos you hit, you you kind of, those people win, right? 
sounds like a nice idea, right? You give them the incentive. Okay, there's the incentive. I give them the constraint that, okay, like there's the constraint that I will now hit those Toreando passes for speed. But what you actually see is that the moment you set up the environment like that, it deteriorates the form because people incentivize towards the number of reps and speed. And this might actually kind of discourages the person to do the kind of exaggerated movement that is actually needed for Toriando. Because if you see how Toriando works in, let's say, real life or, or sparring, is that you obviously you have to move fast, like Toriando is a kind of a fast timing based pass. But at the same time, you really have to work for taking a longer step going around the leg, and then also after controlling the hip or kind of to settle in in a certain way so you don't let them regard. But if you watch a video of even like in very established gyms, you you see that, you see people hitting those Toreando fast reps, they never hit like a control position. They kind of go only halfway. And I would say that in that moment, you're actually learning how to do the technique wrong because you're you're kind of ingraining the movement pattern that is suboptimal for the actual good Toreando pass. For actual good Toreando pass to develop, you would have the resistance of the bottom person at least partly trying to regard. So you have to also fight not only for the speed of the movement, but you also have to fight for what is the exact position that you have to feel that you end up in so you don't get entangled in the regarding movement. Yeah, yeah. Am I making sense here? I don't know. It's kind of hard doing those monologues and and then maybe I'm just blabbering. <laughs> no, no, no. It makes it makes perfect sense. And I, I totally get where you're coming from. I've always been kind of down on that drilling method where you basically try to do speed reps at the beginning because like you said, you're training someone to perform a skill that might look the same as what you want them to do, but the actual goals are quite different, right? If the goal is speed, like you said, you're going to skip steps, important steps like locking the person's hips to complete the pass. And you might be trying to reduce the distance you travel so that you can get more done quicker. But like you said, if you're actually trying to do a real Toriando pass, you have to do longer exaggerated motions because you got to clear the person's legs. And again, if you're, if your goal is speed, you're not going to be doing that. Uh, the other thing too is usually when you're doing these speed drills, usually your opponent is just sitting there doing nothing, right? They're basically a grappling dummy. And that's not realistic to the way that you would actually do this pass in a live environment either. It's less about your ability to be fast and more about your ability to, at all points in time, make sure that you've got the right controls against your opponent, make sure that they can't control you, and make sure that you're able to clear past the legs and then secure the position. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of variability there that doesn't come up when you're actually doing just the speed drill. Kind of reminds me of how, look, when you go back and, you know, flash back to high school and think of the exams that you might have had to take, the problem with the the approach of judging success and knowledge based on exams is you're not really truly testing someone's knowledge. You're testing someone's ability to take a test. Mm -hmm. And that's always kind of a, a bit of a schism. And it's something that if you are issuing tests, you always have to be mindful of. Like, are you testing people's actual ability to perform or are you testing their ability to take a test? And the same kind of rule there applies when you're talking about speed drilling is you're kind of measuring the wrong thing. 
Yeah, exactly. This is now where the coach really needs to think that, okay, like the constraints need to be right. So the right behavior can emerge. And then the coach also needs to think that, okay, like the right behavior not only needs to emerge or there doesn't only need to be the ability for the right behavior to emerge, but the right behavior also needs to be reinforced. That's where it comes in. And in the forums, we're talking about like pulling the trigger, right? And, And this is what you see often in people who are like, let's say early blue belt, late white belt levels in in many gyms is kind of, you see them kind of being reliant on closed guard, for example, especially if they're like from more gi-based gyms and so, and especially when they go against people who are better than them, right? And this is because closed guard can feel like a safe position. And because it's it's like, okay, like it might be really hard to get like a sub or sweep against somebody who's at your skill level uh, from closed guard, but it's also relatively hard for them to do a pass. So so you might see those matches or kind of sparring rounds where, where you see essentially somebody pulls closed guard or gets close, people start from the knees, which is stupid. I, I would never start sparring rounds from the knees because it's a situation that it actually exists or is it super like starting when both people are on their knees it's super rare in actual jujitsu right because if both are on the knees then nothing is limiting either person from standing up okay nor sitting down like so so as either of those is not limited in actual kind of competitive grappling this is going to happen like person should either stand up or sit down so it's kind of yeah silly to start from the knees but you see those closed card matches where the whole five minutes is spent of kind of struggling to for one person to free themselves from closed card and the other person struggling to to try to go for a sub. And I think it is suboptimal because during that five minutes, again, good question, what is being learned here? And the only thing that is being learned there is to kind of, okay, you take some initiative, like some safe initiatives to go for attacks from closed guard. And this can be a good thing. And the other person is learning how to stay safe in closed guard. It's not a bad drill per se, but I wouldn't do it in in kind of, I wouldn't spend a lot of time on that when you're like, I don't know, a month or a year or two into jujitsu because there's so much other stuff you should be learning as opposed to how to hang out in closed guard or kind of top or bottom, doesn't matter. Yeah, I kind of like that example you brought about this kind of constraint-led rule set that you got for new students where you give them the rear naked choke as an objective and you have them work backward from there because that brings a good habit of encouraging people to constantly seek the back. I think one of the things about jujitsu is we've got this obsession with these positions and these moves that we define as the fundamentals, right? So you're normally Mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, close guard, armbar, triangle, so on and so on. And the problem then is we kind of encourage people to focus their training excessively on those positions. And it gets to the point where people become understandably comfortable in those positions because they've been there so long. And because people are comfortable, they get into the habit then of steering the game into those positions, even if it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I like this example that you brought up of getting people to chase the back, because look, if you're a, if you're a new grappler, you know, encouraging people to sit down on their butt and tie someone up in the guard, look, there's nothing wrong with closed guard, but that should probably not be your first choice. You know, for most people, you're probably better off trying to get behind the person and, you know, and take their back. And especially at the white belt level, encouraging that kind of mindset, I think is going to pay more dividends over the long term than encouraging people to, to sit and pull guard. Now, I know that in... 
IBJJF Jiu-Jitsu, we've got a rule set that doesn't necessarily penalize you for pulling guard, right? I mean, there's, from a point standpoint, it's a completely reasonable strategy, but at the same time, in terms of like, okay, what are we really trying to encourage our athletes to do? I think building a philosophy of getting people to chase the mount is probably a better initial foundation to give them than telling them to sit down and pull close guard, right? Especially close guard, which like you said, it it very much can become a security blanket and a comfort zone because you can just hold on to the person and just stall them out, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a very dynamic position. So at the end of the day, you can actually impact your own training negatively because you can get to a position where your whole close guard game is just refusing to make let your opponent move. Exactly. And there's there's another example I'm going to bring. And, but before that, it's important thing to know about incentives and reward is that basically, I think every, every jujitsu guy, everyone who's either teaching or learning something, they should make some, themselves familiar with like the classical behaviorist learning theory, like the work of Pavlov and Skinner, basically like classical conditioning and operant conditioning, because those basic mechanisms of learning apply to every living creature, basically at least every, every creature with like a more complex nervous system all the time. Like, like 24 seven, like this is the same thing. Like you can always take a snapshot and ask yourself, like, what is being learned right now? And the different way to ask it is what is being reinforced right now? And what is important thing about incentives and reinforcement is that to a degree, like in humans, there's variability in that, but we are not only like to a degree, motivation is simple. We want the good stuff, right? We want the good stuff. We want it as soon as possible. And we don't definitely want the bad stuff. We, we do not want the bad stuff. And we do not want the bad stuff that is immediate. Like if, if we would care about bad stuff in the future, then smoking and climate change and so forth and so on, they wouldn't be issues because we would have already dealt with them and, and nobody would smoke and, and everybody. But we're kind of bad into longer future, but we definitely don't want bad stuff happening right now. Like this is for sure. And how it ties into jujitsu is that and this is where the pulling the trigger thing comes from is that when there is somebody who is hesitant and they're kind of like, okay, like here's the position and I know the move that should come next. And I know that I should be more proactive or the coach tells me that I should be more proactive. You could ask that, okay, but this tentativeness, like how it has been learned, it is highly likely that this person previously has learned that if they take more initiative, bad stuff will happen. They will lose the position. They will get crushed, whatever. Because you see it, what I see like always with, for example, it's especially our gym gets quite a lot of women, I think, percentage wise. We're we're very, very happy with, we don't have a separate female group, but we have really cool group of, of women training at beginner's level and color belts level. So I'm really happy with them and they, some of them actively compete. But you always see in, I mean, never say always, but what you often see in beginning females is that when they have trained for, let's say, two months, three months, even like six months, and they start to pass guard, they're kind of, even when they're pretty, like they're running fast around the edges of guard, but they won't really kind of engage into a knee slice or that. Like they, and then the moment you you start to kind of engage them, they, they're really good at backing out, running circles around your guard and trying to speed pass. But they don't kind of, they don't do this gaining inch by inch and, and kind of really taking control of the leg and then forcing your knee slide or leg drag or whatever. And there's an easy reason for that because usually when kind of women start out to train, on the average, in the class, when there is a mixed genders class, 
they are like on the average on the smaller side, right? So when they engage larger, stronger people in guard and they try to pressure in, they give them the chance to to tie them up and kind of overcome them with not only technique, but also attributes, right? So they get swept when they commit and, and kind of come closer and kind of allow for the possibility to, to get tied up in the guard. But when they run circles around the guard and try to like speed pass and really keep them safe, this is constantly being reinforced because then they feel safe. They can avoid the bad stuff. But again, it develops a bad habit of not committing to actual passes because it's discouraged by bad stuff happening. So you kind of see how, how stuff is learned. And when somebody's hesitant to pull the trigger and, and the coach wants to help them in, in overcoming that, you need to ask, like, okay, like one question is like, where has this behavior been learned? Meaning where and how this behavior has been reinforced? How has being hesitant or, or tentative being reinforced in the past? And how can we set up the learning environment so so we can overcome that? For example, you you might want to design an environment for that type of a person, this is now adding specific constraints, you might tell to their opponent that, okay, like you go in and commit and you really kind of smash in with a pass, but you tell to the opponent that, okay, like when this smaller person who has been tentative, when they come in for a good knee slide, like don't push them back. Like this is this is like their success criteria. If, if you manage to let them in close with the knee slide, let them finish the knee slide. Like don't don't use your strength and your frames to push them back, because otherwise, like their knee slide won't get reinforced. So so this is what we do in our gym really really often. We build those kind of resistance drills with a cooperative mindset. Let me give you an example. Like when we do recently, I've spent a lot of time on kind of thinking about how to teach sweeps and because open guard and sweeps, this is for adults. This is the least intuitive part of jujitsu, right? So, so we might set up a drill that, okay, the, the top person is passing. They're keeping their base. They, they're not like a grappling dummy. They're trying to initiate passes. But I might say that, okay, for this drill, you initiate passes, but you don't complete passes. You always let the bottom person recover. So this is one constraint, right? And the other thing is that I can say something like, okay, and during this drill, let's say it's three minutes for one person on top, other on bottom. During this three minutes, up to two passes can happen. So accidentally, kind of when the top person commits to a pass, they might end up still passing, right? So so up to two passes can happen, but at least four sweeps must happen. If four sweeps do not happen, that's not only the fault of the person on the bottom who is learning sweeps, but it's also the fault of the person on the top. And now it's a joint drill. Now the top person also has kind of a goal. They do the passing movements. This is all correct and variable. They don't tell the bottom person that I will go left, I will go right. This is happening organically. But it makes the top person to think that, okay, my goal actually is to help the bottom person learn the sweeps. And when minute and let's say two minutes has already passed and the coach yells out like, okay, one minute to go, then the top person realizes that, oh my God, Bottom person, like they're having a hard time. They might have not completed even one sweep, zero sweeps. So now they will really tune back their resistance because they have a common goal of completing four sweeps. And then also it's kind of a logical conclusion that if the bottom person didn't manage even one sweep in two minutes, that means that 
probably they're not that good yet. And probably the top person was giving too hard resistance, right? But if their joint objective is to make four sweeps happen, then now in the last minute, the top person will know that, okay, I will have to kind of tell the bottom person if necessary, like, okay, put your leg there. And and now you see I'm off balance here, push me in that direction. And then they will get the four sweeps done in the last minute. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That's actually a really insightful idea. And I've never heard someone suggest this, but I love this idea of a cooperative drill where both grapplers have to cooperate to achieve a mutual goal. Because I think one of the issues with the way that we traditionally drill jujitsu is, look, this this is ultimately a combat sport, right? It's one-on-one. And in the absence of any guidance from the, the coach, your incentive when you're training is basically ego gratification, right? You're trying to get the tap because it feels good to get the tap. Mm -hmm. So if you've got two people in there who are fighting each other, they're not incentivized to help the other person train. But when you restructure the goal of the session so that they can only win if they both collaborate together, that's a really brilliant idea and it solves for that problem. Yeah, yeah. Because if you incentivize for win, which is is sparring, we do sparring obviously as well, and especially like competition team training and so forth and so on. We don't actually have a competition team. We, we do it in a different way. I can explain later if it comes to that. But in, let's say, sparring, or even if it's like positional sparring, we, we have guard versus, versus like passing versus bottom, right? You can, you can do isolation sparring. Then if both have their mutually exclusive goals, because it's like, that's, that's the definition of a game, right? You, it's a zero sum game. You, you can't have like passer succeed and the bottom person succeed. This is impossible. So, Either of three things will happen in an isolation drill or let's say even in, in total sparring. Either one person will have more success, like one person will do more movements, more successful movements and kind of maybe end up submitting the other person. And so his skills get reinforced more, right? The other possibility is that it's the other way around, right? And the third possibility is that they're both equally good, both equally skilled, and then they cancel each other out. And they do like an important micro battle in in some situations. But the only thing that gets learned is kind of the pummeling movements, basically, which is a valuable skill to learn. But is this really what you want to spend one third of your sparring of the class on? Let's say you have three five minute rounds. Like, is do you really want to spend like the whole five minutes of like leg pummeling, right? You you might not because there's a whole lot of other stuff being learned as well. And the, the example I, I say is kind of, I think tennis is relatable even to people who don't play tennis, is that when you see two people kind of friends going out on a court, right? Is that when they kind of have the mindset that, oh yeah, let's let's just play. Let's just play against each other. Then what happens when they're not particularly like excellent high level and equal players, when they're like hobbyists, then they're going to spend most of their time on court walking around and picking up balls. And that's a bad way to learn tennis. To actually learn tennis, to get better at tennis, you need to maximize the time that the ball is in play. So so how do you take that to jiu-jitsu? How, that's, that's always my, my question as a coach, is that how do I maximize the time that the ball is in play, that actual jiu-jitsu is happening? So that's the goal. And and how do you do it in tennis? Obviously, you can set the constraint like, okay, let's play a couple of games in the end, but let's let's warm up. Let's kind of play. Let's agree that we kind of try to hit into relative vicinity of each other. 
So even if I see that there's a clear shot, like it's the, the other guy is on the other edge of the court, I will not slam to the other, other side of the court because then we're going to spend time picking up balls again and, and walking around and not actually playing tennis. That's the same thing in jiu-jitsu. And it goes especially like if you're more skilled than the other person, if you have way better physical attributes than the other person, if you just crush them, but it's not only crushing. If you if you also, let's say, kind of don't let them do anything, you're playing in your comfort zone. It can be as well as, obviously, if you kind of knee-mount them and, and crush them with your weight, then you're a really bad training partner. But it can also go for playing defense. Like if you, if you are a way better defense player and then you, yes, you can practice your defense against somebody and they're attacking all the time. You do it for one round. You might be happy, like, okay, I, I, I spent one round in turtle and they didn't get anything. I'm happy with my turtle. But if I go again with the same person, like, is there really a point of playing five minutes of turtle again? Is there jujitsu happening? What is being learned in that moment? I would say that what is being learned is that, okay, I will relearn that the fact that I have a pretty tight turtle, that's cool. The other person might learn that, okay, like there's some value to this defensive stuff. These might be valuable lessons, but how much actual jujitsu skill is being learned now? That is another question. Yeah, yeah. Now, hey, here's a question, because it sounds like a big part of the game here is as a coach, we have to think quite deliberately around, okay, what kind of constraints and what kind of rules can we put into play here so that our students get the most mat time, the most real jujitsu time, and they're focused and incentivized to actually do things that are going to make their jujitsu better rather than artificial things like gym wins, right? Now, as a coach, how do you go about doing that? Because, you know, we talked about earlier how sometimes the thing that intuitively might seem like the right solution winds up actually not being the best way to do things, right? Sometimes yep. you get these ironic errors where despite your best intentions as a coach, you wind up doing something that either doesn't benefit people or maybe makes the problem worse. So I'd love to get your feeling on the coach's perspective of how to know what the right rule and the right constraint is to put into play. Well, essentially, like <laughs> what I like to say, because especially if you have a class of like that is relatively big in my gym usually our jiu-jitsu classes are like at least 30 people on the mats during the season right so there's only one coach per or there might be one coach there might be two like sometimes we get two but there's one coach so essentially i'm thinking about how to make them coaches to themselves and each other as fast as possible. I literally said, I was teaching the class tonight and I literally said that, okay, basically I gave you the blueprint of how to learn all the sweeps. So I'm trying to kind of teach you how to learn and teach jujitsu in the most optimal possible way. And that's not like rocket science, really. It's kind of, we're trying to grapple each other. Like it, it can be sophisticated, but it's not neurosurgery or rocket science. So essentially, like if you have your head in the right place, you can train our, in our gym like six months and then invent your the rest of the jujitsu with the help of YouTube from there. So I kind of said half jokingly that, and then we just pray that you will still come to our club and, and pay the membership fees, right? So to a degree, I'm trying to make myself like unnecessary because there's only one me to give feedback. So 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 first of all, what we always encourage is that we, we encourage kind of how to give feedback. And I don't agree. I, I've heard some coaches say that, oh, like what kind of feedback can a white belt give? And I think this is kind of erroneous. We we even say that, okay, like if, if you had a round and the other person totally steamrolled you, then just try to figure out one thing, like compliment them. 
tell to them like, okay, against you, I, I couldn't do anything. And, and maybe you remember one thing that was especially cool that was done on you. And then you're going to say that, okay, like that arm bar you pulled that it came out of nowhere, like maybe a white belt to a purple belt, like this is the only thing that they can say, but it's still extra reinforcement for those good transitions that the purple belt did, right? So there's still value, valuable feedback to get even from white belts. And, and also, I mean, I mostly, I think there's like two black belts, like I'm one of the two black belts in my, in my club. So I do have to get all my feedback from the purple belts and blue belts who are kicking my ass. Right. So, so yeah, there's definitely value there. I'm trying to teach people how to become better coaches to themselves and to each other. And a lot of it is about like understanding Again, the incentives, like like how can you train in a way that actual jiu-jitsu is practiced? But I wanted to emphasize also that it's not only about kind of getting to be the best jiu in the shortest amount of time possible. Because if you if you kind of want to, I don't know, develop high-level athletes, then you just take a whole bunch of people and you push them through the grinder and the cream rises to the top. Like this is just like this is again kind of how how Marcelo Garcia came to be, but the the problem there is that for that you you have to get your financials from another place and you don't have to care what happens to all the rest of the people, right? Most of us, I think, I would assume that most coaches that listen to this podcast and and most jujitsu kind of learn themselves, like they're they're not on the world athlete level. And even if they do work with and sometimes train with world athlete level, or even if they are a world-class athlete, they're not training with other world-class athletes all the time. So, so you kind of have to be mindful also about not only like how the cream rises to the top, but you also have to be mindful about, let's say air quotation marks, average people what makes them stay in the gym? Because actually, if there are only a couple of athletes in the gym, then what is in their best interest is that when the average hobbyist level is also the highest possible, and also the average hobbyists kind of know how to teach, know how to learn, know how to give feedback, because then they might kind of like, okay, like a competitive purple belt takes like a hobbyist blue belt, but they might train back escapes with them and they're giving them hard enough time in that area. So yeah, teaching how to be best teachers, teaching how to learn oneself, that's really important. And to teach, again, air quotation marks, average people. Why the air quotation marks is that, I mean, there's not the literal literal average person doesn't exist. We, we all are individuals. But the point is that we don't only have to think about how to get to be the best, the fastest, but we also have to think about like what makes you stay in the game the longest. And this is, I'm, I haven't been through, but this is why I liked also the Lovata episodes that you, you had recently on your podcast. It's kind of talking about longevity and, and kind of being in the game. And that's a whole other, other mindset. Because then, I mean, I can give you an easy example. Like, let's say if you train in the 100% best way for two weeks, and then get injured and are out for two weeks, then your jiu-jitsu level is going to be worse as opposed to training four weeks at a, let's say, 70% optimal training schedule. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's great that you bring that up because this is, uh, I think, a great case of survivorship bias with a lot of grapplers where they will say, well, you know, you brought a, a good example. Well, so-and-so, you know, trained like a tiger and he fought in the gym every day and that's how he became a world champion. Well, what happened to all the other guys? What happened to all the other guys in that gym, right? Exactly. Yeah. You, you found a one guy who got incredibly lucky and managed to emerge from a toxic environment successful. That doesn't mean that the method was, was a good method, right? Maybe if better methods were used where you didn't have everyone quitting before they get their first stripe maybe instead of having one really good person you'd have 30 really good people so i i don't buy into that argument that uh you know well okay one guy out of this gym emerged from this very very uh, aggressive environment so so that must be the best way i think that is something that we do need to be mindful of and you know this kind of ties into something you talked about earlier i love that point about how people can get this this negative habit of hesitation and where does that come from and you're right I mean, when you are a more junior grappler, it's less about your technique and it's more about your size and athleticism relative to your opponent until the technique starts to level out and and you have a foundation there. And so the problem that happens, I think, is if you're smaller, you get this this feedback loop in your head where every time you try to do something, the bigger, stronger person just negates it without even trying or without even using technique. And it can be really frustrating. And I can see how over time that can incentivize smaller people to just get into the habit of don't try, like don't pull the trigger. Anything I do is going to get countered. So I'm just going to shell up. And I mean, granted, I don't know if that's why that always happens, but intuitively makes sense that that could be one reason why that does happen. And I love this idea of rather than just letting people fight to the tap to give them a collaborative game to work together that they both have to achieve. That's a great idea that negates so many of the common problems when you kind of like spar to train, right? Which I think is is kind of the the mistake that a lot of us lean on is is our, our skill development is basically just sparring sessions. It's a great way to think of it where you reframe the rules so that winning requires collaboration. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a it's a good way to especially for more complex technique to to kind of allow for more complex techniques to emerge. Because you can kind of do like more more competitive drills, especially when people are already like they know something. But under pressure, under pressure, you will do only the stuff that you're kind of confident in. Being under pressure isn't a good environment to actually experiment and learn new stuff. And this comes back to why I really like Chris Howater's the Think Street Train Sport Practice Art thing, because that's the thing is like you you have kind of the mentality that good jiu-jitsu transcends the modalities then you have the mindset that training in a street mindset is really unhealthy like being in a gym thinking about getting punched in the face or or self-defense all the time like this i think wears you down mentally if you're if you're training with that mindset all the time because then the gym is also a threat right but training a sport can be fun like you're you're playing a game essentially i i say it's kind of even like we teach MMA in the way that, okay, you're doing like boxing, sparring, essentially you're trying to take points just like in tennis or table tennis, right? So in jujitsu as well, you're, you're playing a game, but this can lead into very competitive mindset where the actual ability to learn new stuff, to experiment, to express oneself is limited because you, you, you will learn the things you have success with. And this is now reinforced and you can build a very good, but a very limited game. But the practice art thing is that art is what is done without the goal of winning, right? You, you don't, 
do art to win the art competition. You do art because it's like a creative form of self-expression. And this can inspire you to also in context of jujitsu is like, you can think that, okay, like it's, I have a pretty good game, but now I'm going to just try to play and experiment with lapel guard because it seems kind of cool and to tie one's foot into other person's pajamas and, and, and see what happens, right? And if I pull something off from there, I have a good feeling about that because it, it felt so like beautiful movement, right? And I, I also, I tried to explain the other day to a therapist I, I worked myself with, kind of the combat sports aspect, and she didn't have any experience in that. And I said like, okay, like, but it's like why I like to practice it. It's, it's not about winning, but it's like, even if I do pull off moves against a resisting opponent, it's like a really cool feeling. And, and I, I especially like, this is like, I, I really enjoy like good scrambles. And this is, it's like an, uncooperative dance, you know, like, because it's, it's about like this amazing movement pattern that emerges in the situation. And while we are kind of playing this zero sum game, I also appreciate my opponent because the situation wouldn't be able to be created without them. I'm, I'm grateful to my opponents in that sense. So, so that's the art part or we're, we're creating this together, even when we're trying to play this zero sum game, right? So again, like it's, it's about the initiative. Like it's, I've been able to motivate myself. I mean, if I would be motivated by winning only, I would have quit a long time ago because I'm a almost four years old dad, right? It's like, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't enjoy actually doing jujitsu. And, and to a degree, this is, this is why I stopped practicing MMA. I still enjoy coaching MMA the rare times I do it. But, but it was like, as a sport, it was like too hard on my body. It was, it felt too competitive. It was, yeah, some stuff was cool, but, but it was like really hard to keep the, keep the art stuff in, in focus. And this is why I think jujitsu is in this unique position because it can really be your, or currently it's, I would say it's the only combat sport that is good for everybody. Obviously, we are a jiu-jitsu evangelist here, and, and I think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread or, or whatever. But like, I think there is some truth there, because if you, if you take kind of stand-up grappling arts, such as wrestling or, or judo, obviously, they're kind of, <laughs> maybe it's, it's kind of bad to put it this way, but they're tainted by the Olympics in the sense that there is very strong competitive focus and also what is an aspect of of throwing arts is that they're really hard to begin as an adult due to multiple reasons there's no beginners programs for adults in a lot of places and they are hard on your body because as opposed to starting as a kid your mass is heavier your center of the gravity is higher and it's going to be harder on your body right obviously there's the striking arts but if you want to go full contact striking arts they also hold like health risks that might not be the best for neither young people nor old people, right? But jiu-jitsu hits this sweet spot where we can really connect the aspect of components of self-defense and kind of, let's say, real fighting. Then you have the the aspect of it being a, a competitive sport and this being also a game, like, I don't know, playing soccer with your friends or, or playing tennis. It can be fun in the same way. Like, and, and just like in tennis, you can go out to the local cup and fight against similar old farts such as yourself. You can also do it in jujitsu. Like you can be the 
whatever local blue belt champion in Master 3 and feel really good about it, right? There is the chance for that. And then there's the art aspect as well, that you can kind of enjoy movement and invent cool stuff. And this is the thing I enjoy about jiu-jitsu is that I've been in this for, for like almost 20 years and I have every year multiple moments where I discover something new, right? It's It's... For example, I like a couple of months ago, I, I learned the, it's sometimes called like the scorpion lock, right? Where you from kind of reverse Kesagatame, you, you kind of do like a reverse key lock. And I might have seen it somewhere earlier, but I haven't ever really learned it, right? And I thought it was really cool. I was like, wow, it's like I've been 20 years in this and here's still like a new technique or a new detail. And I mean, being in that, I've I've seen like, Berimbolos emerge and I've seen lapel guard emerge and, and, and this is really, really cool that you still have like these new, new details and inventions and stuff and, and you have way less it in older sports and, and obviously you have less of those in like more constrained sports. Like you're, you're not going to get the new throw that often in Greco-Roman wrestling or whatever, but you are going to get some new stuff in jiu-jitsu. But they're also like talking about incentives and, and coming back to the question, like how to, how to teach people is that I like to make it simple. And this is also where people kind of want to see my teaching method is, is actually, I don't monetize my, my knowledge currently in, in any way. I haven't produced a, a BGJ fanatics instructional yet, even though I had plans, but life, life came in between. So I have stuff in YouTube in BGJ Globetrotters Academy. And for example, if you look at my videos about how to teach stand-up wrestling, which is one of them is simple upper body wrestling for BGJ. And the other is all takedowns you ever need to know. There I try to explain like stand-up grappling from the viewpoint of you have really limited time and you, you kind of want to learn it movement-based as opposed to technique-based. So one can get like a idea how I teach from those. And recently I, I started to teach sweeps the same way because I've always thought that just as I don't like the 40 classic throws of judo, it's like, I think it's, it's kind of totally counterintuitive. It's as good as if you would have like 40 classic kicks of soccer. And I think it's, the idea is ridiculous. So you can't, you can't learn in a movement skill this way. So the similar way, I, I don't like how in a lot of places, guards and sweeps are still thought of because you have this X amount of guards. You have your X guard, your single leg X, your spider guard, your hooks guard, your half butterfly, your half da 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 da. And then from each of those, you have a number of sweeps on the average, like three to four sweeps, right? And if you do the multiplication, you would end up with like, I don't know, like 80 sweeps or something. And if you think about now, like, okay, I, I want to learn sweeps. How do I, how the hell do I learn 80 sweeps? If I learn two sweeps every lesson, it's still going to take like 40 lessons. And then I've already forgot the first two, right? So, so I don't think that's the way to go about it. But how I these days teach sweeps is that I think there are like six basic directions for sweeps where how you do the kuzushi or off balancing and you do have, you can place your limbs and levers in, in different places. So, and you can hit those six directions from multiple body positions. And what it resulted in is that two weeks ago, I, I started to kind of give those ideas to people. And what I saw was that I had white belts who had just finished our beginner's course, which is 10 weeks long. So they're, they've been like three months in jujitsu and nobody has ever taught them X-Car, right? 
but I saw them moving into X-Card. Essentially, I saw them invent X-Card and X-Card, a couple of X-Card sweeps on their own. This is what I saw in some pairs. So, and I thought like, oh, wow, like this is a way better method to go about it as opposed to kind of treating it a position and then techniques from that position. Because overall, like you actually see that it's not about different cards, but it's about how you move between those cards, right? It's it's kind of the glue between the guards with the recovery movements and, and then you move into a different attack and, and you want to keep those attack cycles up. So yeah, again, like long monologue, I don't know if I'm making any sense here, actually. Uh, well, hey, we should actually probably tie this up, but if people want to reach out and contact you, I will put the links to the YouTube stuff in the show notes, but how do you suggest people get a hold of you or follow you? Okay, so if somebody wants to get in touch, they have a proposal for a cooperation project or or just to exchange ideas, I'm always up for that. You can do it in social media, in, in Instagram or other channels, Facebook or, or Twitter. I'm there with my own name, but obviously the BJJ Mental Models Discord as well. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks a lot, Jorgen. Well, hey, I'll put those links in the show notes just to make it easy. So as always, if someone wants to see Jorgen's uh, YouTube stuff or get in touch with them, just pop open the show notes and just tap through. There you go. As always, I'll also put a link in there to BJJ Mental Models Premium. That's the premium service we offer that really goes above and beyond what we talk about here on the podcast. Uh, We already mentioned recently, we just launched a three-part audio series on premium with Rafael Lovato Jr. um, talking about his jujitsu philosophy. I loved those conversations, as you would expect, had a lot of really amazing insights and ideas. And yeah, one of the things he talked about was when you're, you know, when you're trying to set a culture for your gym, you know, you would think that a guy as accomplished as him would talk about the importance of building world champions and all of that. No, he talked about how it's about inspiring people and keeping people committed to the sport and making sure that they get maximal value out of this experience that is jujitsu to, to benefit their lives. Really powerful series of conversations. And like I said, I, I recommend everyone check them out. That's just one of uh, over 50 hours worth of series and audio courses we've got on there. In addition, if you join premium, you also get rolling reviews. So send us your rolling footage, whether it be just casual stuff in the gym or competition roles, and our black belt team will break it down. We've got some all-stars on the team like Rory Van Vliet, Emily Kwok, Dominika Oblanite. So it's not just my dumb ass doing your reviews. There's actual really accomplished people doing them. So please do consider checking it out. There's a free trial if you haven't already. Again, you can get all of that at bjjmentalmodels.com. And of course, I'll put a, a link in the show notes to that as well. But Jorgen, thanks a lot, man, for staying up late with me. Really appreciate appreciate it. Great chat. And it's just so cool to talk to someone who lives in this intersection of jujitsu and sports coaching. Both of you, those backgrounds come together really interestingly. So thanks for sharing all of this info with us. Yeah, it was, it was super fun. And we even didn't touch like competition anxiety and all those (laughs) things. So maybe some other time. Oh man. Yeah. I, I think that there's so much stuff we could unpack. So yeah, we'll get this episode out there, but always glad to have you back on. And thanks again, man, for coming by. Okay. Take care. You too, man. And to everyone else listening to us, thanks a lot to you as well. I do greatly appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.